Well, uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're wondering, and this is your first time with us, and you're wondering what all of that was about, what you just saw was an excerpt of a commencement speech by a guy called David Foster Wallace, who's an author and a writer, who's really addressing just one question. And that is, why are we so irritable and impatient? Why do we treat people who we don't even know who they are or what their intentions are as though they were our enemies? And the solution that he proposes is, if we could just be more empathetic, if I could just consider the fact that someone around me's life might be worse than mine, it would transform me. And I would start to respond differently. But the assumption with that is that that's only as deep as the problem goes. And I would put, I would put to you, and I think Ecclesiastes will put to us today from the Word of God, that the problem is deeper and the answer needs to be deeper. See, why is it that we are so irritable? I have a thought. I think it comes down to how we view time. I think it comes down to how we understand time. If someone says to you, and it's not a complicated question, if someone says to you, what's the time? How do you answer? You will always answer with something like, it's, it's 20 to 5, it's quarter to 5, whatever it is. That's how we respond, with hours and minutes and seconds. And what does that communicate? It says that the main way, the best way to understand time is consecutive seconds, minutes, and hours, and days, and months, and years, and so on. That's the best way to understand time. And you might be thinking, well, how else could you even answer that question? Is there another answer? Well, here's a possibility. Someone could say to you, what's the time? And you say, it's almost lunchtime. Or they say, what's the time? You say, it's just about bedtime. What would those answers communicate about how you view time? that meals and perhaps family and relationships are the main thing or the rhythms that we organize time around. And it is the case that in the West, we view things very much by the clock, but it's not the case in every culture. If you've been to Fiji, or I'm told any of the Pacific Islands, you may be aware of something called Fiji time. And Fiji time is, um, is a way of saying to you that if, if, you, if you're scheduled to do something at 1 p.m., it might happen at 1 p.m., or it might happen at 3 p.m. For example, when we were there one year and we are in the village with some of our friends and they cooked us because we were going away the next day, an underground oven which was called a lovo, and it was due for lunch. We were going to eat this for lunch, which in Fiji is still around the middle of the day. One o'clock went by, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock came around and we finally had lunch, only to get down later at six o'clock to have dinner. And that's just how it happens, because in Fiji, lunch isn't ready at 1 o'clock. Lunch is ready when it's cooked. Similarly, my parents had the same experience in Argentina. They went out to dinner. They were invited around to dinner, rather, and they showed up around 7.30, because that's roughly dinner time, only to find that they were the only people there. They hadn't got the wrong date or the wrong time. They weren't early, because in Argentina, you can neither be early nor late to a dinner. Dinner starts when everyone's there, and it finishes when everyone leaves, which on that night meant that dinner went from about 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. <laughs> and we're told that that wasn't any extraordinary kind of thing. But in Australia, that's not how we do it. We do things by the clock. Everything has a start and a finish time. Even our church gatherings have a start and a finish time. And if you break those times, you waste other people's time. You start to, to, it's considered rude to not stick to a time that's allocated. More than that, you start to, people start to feel exasperated because you're wasting or you're stealing time from them. We view time as our own. So how did we get here? Until the 14th century, 
There was no mechanized clock. And so time was always connected to nature. Even the sundial did not represent an equal hour. At different times of the year, because the days were different lengths, it still meant that the sundial itself was subject to the sun cycle. But after the 14th century, once we had an equal hour and a separate mechanized clock, we were able to separate our understanding from time from nature. American historian Daniel Boston says, the equal hour was one of the greatest discoveries in human history. It meant independence from the sun and mastery of time. Our belief was after that point that time was in our hands. We were no longer subject to some greater power like nature or God, but actually we could measure and control time ourselves. And this has had a profound effect on the way that we understand time. Because we see time as ours. It's mine. And I do my best to get control of it. And when other people take it or it's stolen from me or I lose it, it's a bad thing. We treat it like a physical object. We talk about things like I'm losing time or I'm gaining time or I'm saving time or I'm wasting time. We talk about it like it's literally currency. And yet, Ecclesiastes would say time is not so easily tamed. And that many of our frustrations in life are around the fact that the way that we understand time is not, is not the way that God has created it to be understood or responded to. And what we're going to see in Ecclesiastes 3 is the way that we, as creatures made by God, are to respond to the way that He has made time and life. And we'll see that many of the frustrations and impatiences and sins in life are because we are trying to get control over time and we can't. We are trying to tame the wind. And so my prayer is that as we look at this, that God would teach us that we are but a mist and that He is God and that it is good to trust Him. So let's pray. Father, we pray that as we look at your word in Ecclesiastes 3, that you would make us wise, that you would teach us who you are and who we are before you, that you would humble us, that we might understand that you are the Lord of time and not us, that we might submit to your plans and not you to ours, that we might know how to thrive in each and every season, knowing that you are the one who is in control and not us. And Father, I pray that as you do this, that it would be for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, Ecclesiastes 3 begins the same way that we started last week. Ecclesiastes 1 starts with a poem, and so does this chapter. And it may be one that you've heard of. Even if you're here and you're just finding out about Jesus or even skeptical about him, you may have heard this referenced at some point. But the poem goes like this. It'll come up on the screen for you. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 11. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What does all of this mean? Quite literally, it just sounds like all this stuff happens, at which point you're like, cool story. Like, <laughs> so all of those things happen within the sphere of human experience. I have no opinion on that information, right? It, to tell me that that literally happens is not useful. 
But I think it is telling us something incredibly useful. And the first point is this, that the way to understand time is not primarily minutes and seconds and hours. That can be helpful. But that life moves in seasons. The best way to understand life, you're saying, is that it moves in seasons. It says there is a time to be born. It's often the case that a whole season of life is taken up with the birth of a new life. If you've ever been born, you may know something about this. When you're a baby, all you do is eat, drink, sleep, and poop. Babies don't lie awake at night thinking, am I making the best use of my time? Like, is this, is this what I'm really here for? All their effort, all their soul is going into one thing, just being born, just being alive. But more than that, it brings in all the lives around them. There's a long period of preparation before a birth where parents go through the nesting phase where they're preparing everything for this new life that's going to arrive. They're getting cots ready. They're going to stroller shops and being like, oh my gosh, that's as much as a motorbike. But then, <laughs> but then also thinking like, yeah, actually I do need the one with side airbags because little Bubba is a precious, you know, whatever. And, uh, and it takes up the whole season after as well. Once they're born, the whole next year, everything, the schedules and all these things that we had control of all collapse in around this child who is born. There is a time to be born, and it dominates that season. But the author says there's also a time to die. And that dominates the season too. Sometimes this comes after a long period of preparation as well and expectation, and other times it's sudden and tragic. But for a time, death may define a single season in your life and the lives of the people around you. Similarly, there's a time to plant. It may be moving to a new city, having pulled up roots, you're starting to plant. You find a new place to live and new relationships and new work and everything begins and it's a time to plant. There may also be a time to to pull up where after years of having built a family and a neighborhood, uh, that your, your kids move out of home and it's time to move on and downsize and move suburbs and make new friendships and you pull up all that you've planted over a long period of time. It says there is a time to love, a season that might be defined by falling in love with one particular person where you set upon their good in a way that you haven't been in any season before. And then there is a time to hate where there may have been some wickedness done, a crime committed to you or some family member, a national event where it's plainly evil and the whole season is spent wrestling with the emotion of hate, with the idea of righteous or unrighteous hatred. It may define an entire season in life. Ecclesiastes says there, there, is, there are seasons. This is the way to understand life. They come and they go and they're different. And the defining features of life rarely are the hours on the clock, but the events that are happening in our lives. And so we learn a couple of things from this. And the first one is this. Seasons are not under our control. Seasons are not under our control. I don't know if you've noticed this, but summer or winter show up regardless of your opinion of them. Whether you feel like you've had enough summer or enough winter or whatever it is in between, the seasons don't care. They just roll around like they do. They don't care if your wardrobe is better set up for one or the other. They're rolling through regardless. Because seasons will change regardless of our complaining or our celebrating it. And I think in the same way, these seasons come and go. And that can be a blessing and a frustration. It's a blessing that there's a time to be born, and it's incredibly painful and a frustration that there is a time to die. It's a blessing that there's a time to laugh, and it's painful that there's a time to weep. It's a blessing that a season of war doesn't go on forever, and yet it's a frustration that a season of peace doesn't go on forever. 
These seasons come and go, and we have no power over them. We receive and respond to these things rather than to control or to dominate them. Time is not in our hands. That's the first thing we learn from it. But the second thing we learn from this poem is that life is full of contradictions. All of these seasons, all of these kind of couplets all the way through, if you noticed, are opposites. Life is full of contradictions. In the same hospital where a new life is being ushered into the world, someone else is losing their life. The friends that you laugh with at a birthday party are also the ones that you may cry over at a funeral. This life is full of contradictions. In one season, we might seek out precious things and objects like TVs, and yet in another season, they're almost worthless to us, and we discard them in, in council cleanup. There is a time to tear, a time to sew up, a time to love, a time to hate, and make war and peace. All of these seasons go through. And what the author is saying is, all of these opposites happen within the span of a life. If God would give you enough years to be around, you'll see all of these things come and go. Which means then that life is a zero-sum game. If you don't know, if you're not familiar with that expression, or you are familiar with the concept, if you've ever played Hungry Hungry Hippos, you may not have realised the metaphysical sort of uh, uh, nature to it, or you know, benefit of it. But um, but basically, the way the game starts is you have however many little pellets for your hippo. You put them all out in the middle. Everyone goes mental, and then at the end, someone whoever has the most is the winner. But basically, you start with an equal amount, and then someone takes from me, and I take from them, and so my loss is their gain. But in the end, the losses and the gains add up to zero. That's a zero-sum game, where a loss for one is a gain for the other. But the end result is a zero if you add them together. And here, the author is saying life is a zero-sum game. War cancels out peace. Laughter cancels out weeping. Sewing cancels out tearing. Healing cancels out killing. And in the end, ultimately, life is cancelled out by death, and it's a zero. And so he asks the question that he'll ask all the way through this book, and it's this. In sentence 9 of chapter 3, it'll come up on the screen for you, it says, What gain has the worker from his toil? The word gain is so important to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. This idea of gain is the, is the sense of, it can be translated as overflow or extra or more. And he's saying, what more can you get out of life other than just kind of going through these seasons? And he'll ask this question again and again. And the answer is, if, if it's the case that these seasons just cancel each other out, then you can't, get any, you can't gain anything. There is nothing permanent. Beyond just going through these seasons, there's nothing extra on top of that that you can get out of them. And what we're going to see is that asking, what can I gain, is actually the wrong question to ask. That's the question that leads us to frustration and difficulty and impatience and all of these things. To think that time is mine so that I could so get a handle on it that I might be able to draw gain out of it is the wrong way to think about it. And so the question is, well, what do you do with it? If this is life, this is where the book of Ecclesiastes leaves us with, what do you do with that? Life is a zero-sum game. That's it. Well, no, he continues on. And we'll see in the next sentences a profound answer to this difficult problem about time and life. Look in Ecclesiastes 3, 10 to 13. He says this, and it'll come up there as well. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into, the, into man's heart 
so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. He's saying, look, life is a series of seasons that are completely and utterly out of your control. They're contradictory. They roll through. They have no, they don't care how you feel about them. They'll continue to roll through. And in the end, it's a zero-sum game. But God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, what exactly does this mean? It sounds like a positive note, but given what we've just looked at, this poem, what does that possibly mean, that God has made everything beautiful in its time? I understand laughter being beautiful in its time, but what about war and killing and death? Well, one thought would be, well, maybe it's like a, a mosaic. That uh, if, you, if you know what a mosaic is, it's kind of a, a large picture made up of many smaller parts. And so maybe if you look at life on the whole, there are some darker bits, killing, death, all that sort of stuff, and some brighter bits like laughter and, and, and being born and all of that sort of stuff. And on the whole, it's a beautiful picture altogether. It's kind of like a symphony. There are some minor and some major chords, but together it's a beautiful symphony. Now there is that kind of theme or understanding of time in the Bible, in the scheme of of all of creation, but I don't think that's what this particular passage is getting at. Namely because he says he has made everything beautiful in its time, within its own time, not within the grand scheme of time, the grand plan of God, but in its own time. So then the question is, does that mean that every one of these things is beautiful? You can understand that laughter is beautiful. You could even understand by a stretch that weeping can be beautiful because it's kind of cathartic or it might be the right response to a tragic event. But how is killing beautiful or war? Maybe he's saying, kind of like the old phrase from World War I and II, they had a Latin phrase that floated around which was dolce et decorum est pro patria morte. It is sweet and decorous to die for one's country. Maybe the beautiful thing in its time is to valiantly lay down your life to defend others, to take life, to preserve life. It could be that. And in that way he's saying all of these things are beautiful in their own time. But I don't think that's the case. And I'm not just saying that because I think so, because in the end, who cares what I think? It's a a bad habit to get into, to see something in Scripture and just say, well, it couldn't possibly mean that because I don't like it. If that's the case, we're wasting our time here saying we follow God. Either the Word of God is His Word or it's ours. We believe that God interprets his own word. That The best way to understand it is as we see his own word interpret his own word. And so as we look at this, only a few verses later, he says that I've seen oppression under the sun, that it is a great evil. That there is a way that we treat one another that is not beautiful. That not everything that happens all of the time is beautiful if you just look at it right. That's not what he's getting at here. What he's saying here as we look at it is that there is something beautiful to do in each season regardless of how wicked or evil it is. In sentence 12 he says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. He says everything is beautiful. He doesn't say every season is beautiful or every time is beautiful. But there will be a beautiful thing to do in each season. That's why he says to do good, to find joy and to do good in each and every season. Although our seasons are out of our control, God is saying there is not a single season that he will put you in in which there is not the opportunity to do something good and beautiful. 
There's a movie that came out last year called Hacksaw Ridge. You might, may or may not have seen it, but it was the true story. It was the retelling of a true story of a soldier called Desmond Doss who was a conscientious objector. And that meant that he believed it was wrong. He was a Christian man and he believed that it was wrong to, to fight in, in the, the global conflict at the time and it was wrong to take another life. And more than that, for him it was wrong to even put his hand on a weapon. And so he was going to head into war and wanted to head into war as a medic but to not take a rifle with him. And the, the story, uh, you know, who knows how much they kind of elaborate out at the beginning of the story, but, um, but basically it takes a long time for him to be approved to go into conflict because they're worried that he's a coward and they're taking a coward onto the battlefield. And so in the movie, when he's on trial defending his position and why it is that he should be allowed to go into combat without a rifle, he says this, With the world so set on tearing itself apart, it don't seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little piece of it back together. And that was his view of it, that even in a horrible, evil, wicked season, there was still something beautiful to do to try and save lives in the midst of combat. And far from being a coward, he was awarded for his valor. He wasn't a coward, he wasn't afraid of losing his life, but he had set his heart and mind to saving lives. In each and every season, there is a beautiful and good thing to do, despite what the season is, despite how evil or wicked or out of control it might be, God has put something good before us that we might do. But here's the problem with that. As we get to that, and you saw David Foster Wallace wrestle with that very question even in that video, even when it comes to lining up in queues and how irritable and awful we can be to one another, how do you have the discipline, how do you have the mindfulness in the moment to actually stop yourself from the default setting, the sinful desire to gain control of my time and to feel like everyone else is in my way and my enemy? How do we stop and think, I can't get control of this season, but God has just set me here to do some beautiful thing? We believe here that the Bible is one long story, and from beginning to end, God gradually reveals more and more of himself. We don't have this contrast where it's like, well, the Old Testament says this, but the New Testament says this, but it's one long story revealing more about God. And we believe that in the Old Testament, one theologian put it this way, the truth in Old Testament to New is like this. It's like a room richly furnished but dimly lit. And when Jesus arrives, it's like someone flicks the light on. And we understand it all in full light. So how is this truth about seasons and doing beautiful things seen more clearly and brightly in the New Testament? We'll come to Philippians 4, to the letter of Paul the Apostle, the follower of Jesus. In Philippians 4, it'll come up here for you as well. He writes this in in sentences 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, uh, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. For I have learned, in whatever situation I am, to be, to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is writing this letter and he says to the Philippian church, he says, rejoice. He says, rejoice always. And he says, in case you misheard me, I say again, rejoice. He says, I wasn't saying it as like a casual kind of throwaway line. I really meant it, rejoice. And why? He says, because the Lord is at hand. That Jesus is coming back. He believed that knowing Jesus transformed everything. 
But if you know Jesus, the one who came to earth as a man to die in your place for your sin, to secure your relationship with God, he puts you in a place where you have nothing to worry about. Your eternity is secure. That even though the seasons are completely and totally out of your control and you have no power over them, over what comes when or how, then in any and every circumstance you'll be able to abound and to be content because you have Jesus and you can respond rightly. That there'll be something good and beautiful you can do in every season. And he isn't just saying this, he's living it out. That he's writing this letter from prison. Now he was a missionary and he was moving through the world planting churches and telling people about Jesus. Then he's arrested and put in jail. And he doesn't just sit there going, oh, well, this is great. Like, God, I was working so hard for you, and this is how you repay me. You put me in jail. I can't do the one thing that I'm supposed to do as a missionary. He doesn't. Instead, he starts telling the guards and the prisoners about Jesus. He writes letters to the churches to encourage them, even from his jail cell. And he's penning these words from there as well. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. But more than that, he says, I believe that God is the one who strengthens me to actually do it. That it's not just kind of this self-help advice or like, wouldn't it be great if we all thought about life in this way? He's saying, no, no, no. The way I can live out this truth is by God actually strengthening me to do it. That God wants me to pursue joy in him in every season, despite how chaotic or confusing it is. But it's hard for us to do this, isn't it? And oftentimes our minds are so fixed on future anxieties or worries that we miss the opportunity to serve God and to find joy in the moment. Remember last year in October, our daughter Harper got really sick. It was the second time she'd had a pretty serious hospital visit. And this time, when we brought her in, the same thing happened. You get to the emergency room, and when the triage nurse sees them, they're obviously concerned, and everybody starts moving very quickly and deliberately, which fills you with panic as you're there as a parent. Um, But as she was rushed through, long story short, she was okay, but at the time there were sort of four pretty serious viruses going around, and she picked up two of them, so well done, punching way above her weight for a little one-year-old. But it meant she was really crook. Um, And we were at a leader training event, and we had to go home for that and to take her to hospital. And she had to stay the first night, and then she had to stay the next night. Now, the next weekend, a couple of times a year, we have a big event down at the town hall, and I was set to speak at that. And, uh, and, you know, the week before, I would wanted to be prepared and to get ahead of the game. But as the week was going on, the days were slipping away. And every day, the pediatrician would come in and say, I'm really sorry, she's going to have to stay overnight again. Her blood oxygen isn't good enough to send her home. And you did that on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday. And I could just feel the days slipping away from me. And my mind was so much on the fact that I was losing time that I missed out on the opportunity to just serve and love God in the moment. I was so concerned about whether or not we would go home and whether I'd have enough time to get the work done that I I was just there stressing about that rather than just thinking, what is the good and beautiful thing that God has put me here to do right now? I have no power over what's going to happen. I'd prepared for the week. God washed it away. There's nothing I can do about that. And the only valuable question to ask at that point would have been, what is the good and beautiful thing I can do right now? My daughter's getting better. The best thing I can do right now is just hold her, comfort her, help her to go to sleep, and look at her blood oxygen levels go up and down on the little monitor over and over again. That was all there was for that season to do, but I missed it because I was so focused on what was coming up. And this can be us. That we are so worried about future events that we miss what's happening right now. Or more than that, we are so waiting in anticipation of some future event that we miss what's happening right now. 
With parents, it's often the feeling that once I get out of this season, I will finally be able to find joy. I'll finally be happy. I'll finally sleep eight hours, and then I'll be happy and everything will be great. But for others, it can go the other way. For some of you, it might be that you're in a season of singleness, and you're like, until I find someone, really my life is on hold. That really, until that comes, comes good, then really I'm, just, I'm treading water, and nothing good is really going on. It might be that unless some future event comes through, you feel like life is just on hold until then. And yet Ecclesiastes would say, and Philippians would reverberate, no, right now there is some joy to find in the Lord. There is something good to do. If we would step outside ourselves and consider the will of God, we would find something good to do. And so what are the implications of this? The implications are to learn that we are not in control of time. That we cannot control time. You know, it is the case that the way that we view time, I think in the West at least, has led us to be materially very rich and relationally very poor. That understanding time in terms of hours and minutes and seconds is a good way to make money and a terrible way to make friends. And this view that we are, that time is mine and my own and I need to make the most of it and get the most out of it and we are so tight-fisted with our time that we don't make time for wasting time with things like relationships. Because relationships are one thing that we can't control very easily, are we? In fact, in order to have good relationships, you need to waste a lot of time with people. If relationships were treated the same way we treated business, it would be very hard to put some KPIs on them. And of course, it wouldn't lead to very good relationships. If you were to say to someone, look, uh, we've sort of been going at this at sort of you know, three to six months, and I feel like we've missed our KPIs monthly, and um, I'm going to have to terminate this friendship at this point. I'm really sorry. Um, but HR will run you through the, sort of the back end of the contract. <laughs> it doesn't work. Because relationships don't work well with a view of time that it's mine, and I need to get the most out of it, and other people are wasting it all the time. See, as individuals, we need to know that seasons are not in our control. We need to surrender that to God and to, to trust Him in that. But as a church, this affects us too. There are two big time wasters that we've built into the fabric of this church. One is that missional communities have a meal together. It's a waste of time. Right? If we're there to study the Bible, let's, let's just make it smash and grab. Let's just get the Bible, understand it, and get out of there, right? <laughs> Having dinner is such a waste, and it's an effort, and all this kind of stuff, Right? But it should be the case that we just waste time with one another, that we're not so tight-fisted with it because we understand that actually we're free to spend and waste time with people. That it's a good thing, a good and beautiful thing just to be present in conversation. To, at the end of the night, not have to run off every single time. But if someone was talking about something significant, you don't avoid it because you're like, oh my gosh, this could go to a 10. But you're like, I've got time. I can talk to you. I mean, the other one we've built in here is that we go to the pub or the park after each service so that, yeah, we have our set times of the gathering, but it kind of continues on. We can just continue to waste time with people. As people come and visit, they should see that we're people who, you know, we have jobs and there are things that need to get done in life, but we're not so tight-fisted with it that we don't want to, that we avoid people. That there's time just to hang out and to waste time with one another. It should be the case that, I mean, it used to be the case you might have heard a term, maybe your parents used it or something like that, of a, like people used to talk about if someone was driving slow, they'd be like, oh, Sunday driver. And like, it's so old, it's, a, it's almost a relic that people don't even understand what the reference is, right? But it used to be the case that people had so little to do on a Sunday that they would just go for a drive. 
and not to any, they weren't even going anywhere. They just drove around, right? Because you just had that much time. Because Sunday was a nothing day. You had no sports on it. You had no activities. There was no work to be done. The petrol stations weren't open, which obviously made the Sunday drive hard. You had to plan ahead. But people would just drive around because that was what you did on a Sunday. But now it's eroding. I mean, even penalty rates are being pulled back from Sundays because the idea is that the work week should just roll on continually. We need to get more and more money out of the time that we have. And so we've lost even the idea, the biblical idea of a Sabbath. We'd say, I'm just going to clear out a day and I get anything productive done that day. And I hang out with the church community and the best thing I can say about the day in terms of productivity is that I had a good sandwich and a chat. And that's it. That's as effective as I was for that Sunday. And the question with that might come, well, look, is, is Ecclesiastes, is it ultimately anti-organization? Is it anti-planning? And it's not. But it would say, if you're planning to get gain, to get the most out of your time, to get control, you will not get it. God will set his face against you and you'll find yourself frustrated and annoyed and mad and furious. But it is good to plan so that we might be able to waste time with people. That we might be able to be present in the moment and be able to say, God, what good and beautiful thing am I meant to do right now? That we'd organize our time so we're not so scatterbrained that we're always running from one thing to the other. We'd plan ahead as much as we can and, and control our work schedules and things and our lives and our relationships so that, not so that we can get control over our lives, but so that we can say, I'm free then to just, to just blow an eye on talking to someone because they needed to talk. And look, you go, there are any number of ways you can land this. But the truth of Ecclesiastes is this. God is warning us. It comes from the heart of sin to want to control time. That is the right of God, and sin is when we want to say, I want to be like God. I want to get control over what he has control over, and he will not relent it. He will not give it to us. We cannot master time. We'll face frustration and anxiety in everything that comes with trying to tame the wind. When we stop asking the question, what can I gain, and start asking the question, what good and beautiful thing has God for me in this season, in this moment to do right now for his glory? we will find joy instead of anxiety and frustration. Let's pray that he would strengthen us, as it says in his word in Philippians 4.13, that we might be able to do this. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are sovereign, and we praise you that we are not. We praise you that we're not in control of our lives, that if we had more power, it would bring more ruin. And so we surrender our lives to you, knowing that you are the one who is in control of all things that you are the one who is in control of all seasons. And we pray that you would humble us, that we might stop asking what can I gain or get control of and start asking what good and beautiful thing can I do in this season. And we pray that you wouldn't leave us as orphans in this world as you have promised not to, but you would empower us by your Holy Spirit in each and every season to know how it is that we might live for you and honor you and how it is that we might do something good and beautiful for the sake of your name that we might know the joy of thriving in each and every season, that we might be able to say as your servant Paul that we know how to abound and how to be brought low, how to face hunger and need and also plenty, that we would know all these things not for our sake, but that you might be glorified in our lives, that you might be seen to be God over our lives. And Father, we pray all these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen. We're going to waste some time now reflecting. And so I'd urge you to to take a moment to think and to reflect on Ecclesiastes 3. And then we're going to come back together in a moment and respond in praise and song.